The Confessions of Arsène Lupin by Maurice Leblanc Narrated by Paul Spera The Red Silk Scarf On leaving his house one morning at his usual early hour for going to the law courts, Chief Inspector Ganimar noticed the curious behavior of an individual who was walking along the Rue Pergolaise in front of him. Shabbily dressed and wearing a straw hat, though the day was the first of December, the man stooped at every thirty or forty yards to fasten his bootlace or pick up his stick or for some other reason and each time he took a little piece of orange peel from his pocket and laid it stealthily on the curb of the pavement. It was probably a mere display of eccentricity, a childish amusement to which no one else would have paid attention, but Ganimar was one of those shrewd observers who are indifferent to nothing that strikes their eyes and who are never satisfied until they know the secret cause of things. He therefore began to follow the man. Now, at the moment when the fellow was turning to the right into the Avenue de la Grande Armée, the inspector caught him exchanging signals with a boy of twelve or thirteen who was walking along the houses on the left-hand side. Twenty yards further, the man stooped and turned up the bottom of his trouser leg. A bit of orange peel marked the place. At the same moment, the boy stopped and, with a piece of chalk, drew a white cross surrounded by a circle on the wall of the house next to him. The two continued on their way. A minute later, a fresh halt. The strange individual picked up a pin and dropped a piece of orange peel, and the boy at once made a second cross on the wall and again drew a white circle around it. By Jove, thought the chief inspector with a grunt of satisfaction, this is rather promising. What on earth can those two merchants be plotting? The two merchants went down the Avenue Friedland and the Rue du Faubourg Saint-Honoré, but nothing occurred that was worthy of special mention. The double performance was repeated at almost regular intervals and, so to speak, mechanically. Nevertheless, it was obvious, on the one hand, that the man with the orange peel did not do his part of the business until after he had picked out with a glance the house that was to be marked, and, on the other hand, that the boy did not mark that particular house until after he had observed his companion's signal. It was certain, therefore, that there was an agreement between the two, and the proceedings presented no small interest in the chief inspector's eyes. At the Place Beauvau, the man hesitated. Then, apparently making up his mind, he twice turned up and twice turned down the bottom of his trouser leg. Hereupon, the boy sat down on the curb, opposite the sentry who was mounting guard outside the Ministry of the Interior, and marked the flagstone with two little crosses contained within two circles. The same ceremony was gone through a little further on when they reached the Elysee. Only on the pavement where the president's sentry was marching up and down, there were three signs instead of two. Hang it all, muttered Ganimar, pale with excitement and thinking in spite of himself of his inveterate enemy, Lupin, whose name came to his mind whenever a mysterious circumstance presented itself. 
Hang it all, what does it mean? He thought of collaring and questioning the two merchants, but he was too clever to commit so gross a blunder. The man with the orange peel had now lit a cigarette, and the boy, also placing a cigarette end between his lips, had gone up to him, apparently, with the object of asking for a light. They exchanged a few words. Quick as thought, the boy handed his companion an object which looked, at least so the inspector believed, like a revolver. They both bent over this object, and the man, standing with his face to the wall, put his hand six times in his pocket and made a movement as though he were loading a weapon. As soon as this was done, they walked briskly to the Rue de Suresne, and the inspector, who followed them as closely as he was able to do without attracting their attention, saw them enter the gateway of an old house of which all the shutters were closed, with the exception of those on the third or top floor. He hurried in after them. At the end of the carriage entrance, he saw a large courtyard with a house painter's sign at the back and a staircase on the left. He went up the stairs, and as soon as he had reached the first floor, ran still faster because he heard, right up at the top, a din, as of a free fight. When he came to the last landing, he found the door open. He entered, listened for a second, caught the sound of a struggle, rushed to the room from which the sound appeared to proceed, and remained standing on the threshold, very much out of breath, and greatly surprised to see the man of the orange peel and the boy banging the floor with chairs. At that moment, a third person walked out of an adjoining room. It was a young man of twenty-eight or thirty, wearing a pair of short whiskers in addition to his mustache, spectacles, and a smoking jacket with an astrakhan collar, and looking like a foreigner, a Russian. "'Good morning, Gadimar,' he said, and turning to the two companions, "'Thank you, my friends, and all my congratulations on the successful result. Here's the reward I promised you.' He gave them a hundred-franc note, pushed them outside, and shut both doors. I am sorry, old chap, he said to Ganimar. I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to talk to you badly. He offered him his hand, and seeing that the inspector remained flabbergasted and that his face was still distorted with anger, he exclaimed, Why, you don't seem to understand, and yet it's clear enough. I wanted to see you particularly, so what could I do? And pretending to reply to an objection, No, no, old chap, he continued, you're quite wrong. If I had written or telephoned, you would not have come, or else you would have come with a regiment. Now I wanted to see you all alone, and I thought the best thing was to send those two decent fellows to meet you with orders to scatter bits of orange peel and draw crosses and circles, in short, to mark out your road to this place. Why, you look quite bewildered. What is it? Perhaps you don't recognize me. Lupin. Arsène Lupin, ransack your memory. Doesn't the name remind you of anything? You dirty scoundrel, Ganimard snarled between his teeth. Lupin seemed greatly distressed, and in an affectionate voice, Are you vexed? Yes, I can see it in your eyes. The Dugreval business, I suppose. I ought to have waited for you to come and take me in charge. There now, the thought never occurred to me. I promise you, next time. You scum of the earth, growled Ganimar. And I thinking I was giving you a treat. 
Upon my word, I did. I said to myself, that dear old Ganimar, we haven't met for an age. He'll simply rush at me when he sees me. Ganimar, who had not yet stirred a limb, seemed to be waking from his stupor. He looked around him, looked at Lupin, visibly asked himself whether he would not do well to rush at him in reality, and then, controlling himself, took hold of a chair and settled himself in it, as though he had suddenly made up his mind to listen to his enemy. Speak, he said, and don't waste my time with any nonsense. I'm in a hurry. That's it, said Lupin. Let's talk. You can't imagine a quieter place than this. It's an old manor house which once stood in the open country, and it belongs to the Duc de Rochelaure. The Duke, who has never lived in it, let this floor to me and the outhouses to a painter and decorator. I always keep up a few establishments of this kind. It's a sound, practical plan. Here, in spite of my looking like a Russian nobleman, I am Monsieur Dobreuil, an ex-cabinet minister. You understand, I had to select a rather overstocked profession so as not to attract attention. Do you think I care a hang about all this? said Ganimar, interrupting him. Quite right. I'm wasting words and you're in a hurry. Forgive me, I shan't be long now. Uh, five minutes, that's all. I'll start at once. Have a cigar? No. Very well. No more will I. He sat down also, drummed his fingers on the table while thinking, and began in this fashion. On the 17th of October, 1599, on a warm and sunny autumn day, do you follow me? <laughs> but now that I come to think of it, is it really necessary to go back to the reign of Henry IV and to tell you all about the building of the Pont Neuf? No, I don't suppose you are very well up in French history, and I should only end by muddling you. Suffice it then for you to know that, last night at one o'clock in the morning, a boatman passing under the last arch of the Pont Neuf aforesaid, along the left bank of the river, heard something drop into the front part of his barge. The thing had been flung from the bridge, and its evident destination was the bottom of the Seine. The bargee's dog rushed forward, barking, and when the man reached the end of his craft, he saw the animal worrying a piece of newspaper that had served to wrap up a number of objects. He took from the dog such of the contents as had not fallen into the water, went to his cabin, and examined them carefully. The results struck him as interesting, and as the man is connected with one of my friends, he sent to let me know. This morning I was woken up and placed in possession of the facts and of the objects which the man had collected. Here they are. He pointed to them, spread out on a table. There were, first of all, the torn pieces of newspaper. Next came a large cut-glass inkstand with a long piece of string fastened to the lid. There was a bit of broken glass and a sort of flexible cardboard reduced to shreds. Lastly, there was a piece of bright scarlet silk, ending in a tassel of the same material and color. "'You see our exhibits, friend of my youth,' said Lupin. "'No doubt the problem would be more easily solved if we had the other objects which went overboard owing to the stupidity of the dog. But it seems to me, all the same, that we ought to be able to manage with a little reflection and intelligence. And those are just your great qualities. How does the business strike you?' Genemar did not move a muscle. He was willing to stand Lupin's chaff, but his dignity commanded him not to speak a single word in answer, nor even to give a nod or shake of the head that might have been taken to express approval or criticism. I see that we are entirely of one mind, continued Lupin, without appearing to remark the chief inspector's silence. 
and I can sum up the matter briefly as told us by these exhibits. Yesterday evening, between nine and twelve o'clock, a showily dressed young woman was wounded with a knife and then caught round the throat and choked to death by a well-dressed gentleman wearing a single eyeglass and interested in racing, with whom the aforesaid showily dressed young lady had been eating three meringues and a coffee éclair. Lupin lit a cigarette and, taking Ganimard by the sleeve, Aha! That's up against you, Chief Inspector. You thought that in the domain of police deductions, such feats as those were prohibited to outsiders? Wrong, sir. Lupin juggles with inferences and deductions for all the world like a detective in a novel. My proofs are dazzling and absolutely simple. And pointing to the objects one by one, as he demonstrated his statement, he resumed. I said after nine o'clock yesterday evening. This scrap of newspaper bears yesterday's date with the words evening edition. Also, you will see here, pasted to the paper, a bit of one of those yellow wrappers in which the subscribers' copies are sent out. These copies are always delivered by the nine o'clock post. Therefore, it was after nine o'clock. I said a well-dressed man. Please observe that this tiny piece of glass has the round hole of a single eyeglass at one of the edges, and that the single eyeglass is an essentially aristocratic article of wear. This well-dressed man walked into a pastry-cook's shop. Here is the very thin cardboard, shaped like a box, and still showing a little of the cream of the meringues and eclairs, which were packed in it in the usual way. Having got his parcel, the gentleman with the eyeglass joined a young person whose eccentricity in the matter of dress is pretty clearly indicated by this bright red silk scarf. Having joined her, for some reason as yet unknown, he first stabbed her with a knife, then strangled her with the help of this same scarf. Take your magnifying glass, Chief Inspector, and you will see on the silk stains of a darker red, which are here the marks of a knife wiped on the scarf, and there the marks of a hand covered with blood clutching the material. Having committed the murder, his next business is to leave no trace behind him. So he takes from his pocket first the newspaper to which he subscribes, a racing paper, as you will see by glancing at the contents of this scrap, and you will have no difficulty in discovering the title, and secondly, a cord, which, on inspection, turns out to be a length of whip cord. These two details prove, do they not, that our man is interested in racing and that he himself rides. Next, he picks up the fragments of his eyeglass, the cord of which has been broken in the struggle. He takes a pair of scissors, observe the hacking of the scissors, and cuts off the stained part of the scarf, leaving the other end, no doubt, in his victim's clenched hand. He makes a ball of the confectioner's cardboard box. He also puts in certain things that would have betrayed him, such as the knife which must have slipped into the Seine. He wraps everything in the newspaper, ties it with the cord, and fastens this cut-glass inkstand to it as a make-weight. Then he makes himself scarce. A little later, the parcel falls into the waterman's barge, and there you are. Ah, it's hot work. What do you say to the story?'